You're listening to The Dice Men Cometh, broadcast live to air on Edge Radio 99.3 FM and proudly sponsored by LFG Australia. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to The Dice Men Cometh, episode 312. That number is getting bigger and bigger every single week, I swear. Uh, And I am your friendly neighbourhood, Leon, joined as I am by your somewhat as friendly neighbourhood, Garth. Garth, how are you, sir? I am certainly somewhat friendly, and I am also, like 312, getting bigger. This whole COVID situation is really not doing my... uh, my my whole gaming body too too much good we did devour about 10 kilos of honeycomb covered in chocolate on saturday night and uh well it was fun the the repercussions are going to be pretty dire well i had every intent of being a good healthy person and until i found out that they're releasing uh bubble bill ice cream in a tub now so that's me done <laughs> for at least the next year i'm not even going to consider losing weight because it's just not going to happen so anyway who are these people talking about eating loads of rubbish well the reason we do that is because generally that goes hand in hand and playing stuff around a table because we are australia nay the southern hemisphere's biggest board gaming tabletop gaming podcast where we talk about everything in the world of board gaming RPGs, tabletop games, anything you can play on a table, and especially now, locked away in the safety of your own home or even online, as a lot of people have been doing of late. And as I say, this is episode 312, always brought to you by our good friends at LFG Australia. Check them out at lfg-aus.com. Give them all the money and they will send you all the fun for you to have. And Garth, as always, we are joined by a lovely special guest who you're going to interview in a moment. Who is that? Yeah, and speaking of food, that is the introduction that I'm sure this particular special guest has never, ever had before because he is definitely maybe Mr. Sushi or at least Go or Mr. Sushi Go Party. We are talking about the one and only Phil Walker-Harding. Hi, Phil. How are you? And what an intro, hey? Hello. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, Is this a cooking podcast? (laughs) the joy of being the special guest is you get to make it whatever you want. Okay, well, let's talk about sushi for an hour then. <laughs> no, that's not fair because I've been trying to turn this to a professional wrestling podcast for years and I never got any traction with that, Garth. You can't just throw that out willy-nilly. Well, you're not a special guest, Leon, so, you know, that's, that's when you're just a grunt, you get to do what we say. Uh, now, Phil, we, we better actually, you know, introduce you properly and we better make sure that anyone who listens to this board game podcast and doesn't know who and what you are, first of all, we should probably ask them to go and listen to some other podcasts. But what is your sort of pitch? What is your who am I, what am I, and why is a Phil Walker Harding? Uh, so I've got to pitch myself. Absolutely. Why you should listen to me. <laughs> well, I'm a game designer. Uh, I've been designing games seriously for, I guess, a bit over 10 years now. Most famously, I've designed Sushi Go, uh, Imhotep, uh, Gizmos, Baron Park, a bunch of other games. I started off self-publishing, now I'm just designing. And um, yeah, that's my pitch. There you go. That, that works for the big name designers and publishers. So it'll work for a little old podcast. What do you think about yeah. that, Leon? Was it nice? Well, as, as far as pitches go, I mean, it's a lot more than what we've got on our on our table. That's for sure, Garth. I mean, we've got 312 episodes, sure. But there's not much substance to that when it actually comes to playing very cool games on a table, sadly. 
No, but in terms of Phil Walker-Harding games, I, I'm going to consider myself quite a connoisseur because I look through this list and I go, you know what? I've played almost everything that you have uh, at least released according to BGG, Phil. So do I get a gold really? star or something for that? Sure. Great. Sure. Um, have you played um, Yummy World Party at Picnic Palace, the card game? No. No, I haven't, well, unfortunately. Well, I've, I've been to trying to get a review copy of that and no one seems to have any for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it may have disappeared into obscurity. But <laughs> if you've played that, I will give you a gold star. All right. Well, that is my mission to find a copy. So, look, let's let's talk about the the history that is yours, because yeah, as as you say, and it is very you know out there on uh, any dice men research uh, that you've been designing since about two thousand and seven. This is when the the whole self published designer Phil Walker Harding first emerged. But but before we get to that, what turned a young Phil Walker Harding from an innocent young person into a, a ravenous game designer who just wants award after award after award and won't settle for anything less. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I guess I've always played games and I think when I was young, dabbled in game design as well. But when I got into kind of the modern German game revolution, so in like 2004, um, that just completely renewed my interests in board games in a pretty big way. And I just started designing as a hobby after that. So it's just something totally just I did, you know, um, in my spare time just for fun and eventually thought, oh, I should try and get some of this stuff out. And I just started self-publishing. This is of course way before Kickstarter or yep. anything like that. So these were like handmade print runs of 50 games. I mean, this is, this is the dark ages. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I did that for, you know, five, six, seven years and slowly, I guess, built up a little bit of a name and a couple of those games got picked up by publishers. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of slowly built and yeah, I eventually made the transition over to just designing and, and trying to get my games placed with, with uh, publishers who knew much better what they were doing. So <laughs> that I'm a little bit confused about because almost every designer we've had on the podcast podcast says i loved playing games i got into them something like katana carcassonne or whatever the cliche is is the one that sort of opened my mind and i just decided to design games and that's the big leap for for someone who's clearly not as smart like me and go well if i really like something i might just buy more games i don't want to go and design them like how do you how do you make that leap it's a pretty big one isn't it well for me, I, there's something in my brain, which is every, every media, uh, every like area I've gotten into, I've always had a go at creating. Okay. So like I went to film school because I wanted to be a director because I like movies. Um, when I was little, I liked reading. So I wanted to be an author. I've been yep. in bands. I've, you know, I've always got to be like the one who tries making the thing. So it could just be my, my brain. Um, <laughs> but I also think part of like what made getting into modern game design or modern game playing, I should say really fun is I think for the first time I could see in the game, the kind of the personality of the designer. Yep. Like when you're playing, when you're young and you're playing mass market games, you don't even think about the designer, you know, you just think about, you know, that you're playing mousetrap or operation uh, silly. Yep. But when you play Catan, you're like, who made this? Like what brain came up with this rule and who came up with this and, 
So I think it just naturally for me led into thinking about game design in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the first games I got into was Lost Cities. Yep. The Reiner Knizia card game. And I remember after playing it just a couple of times, I was like, I think there's got to be a better four player variant than the one in the rules where you need two <laughs> copies. So I like ran out and got some paper and started cutting up cards to try and come up with one. As you do. So yeah, maybe it's just my brain. I'm not sure. Just one of those people who, if you're into something, you want to go all the way to a hundred. You just don't want to want to stop. You want to make sure you get every facet of it. I think, I think it's admirable. It's certainly something I can't do, but that's because I'm very limited. I can talk a little bit and that's about the extent of my, my capability. But maybe you can enjoy games on a yes. more innocent, more pure level than I can anymore. So, no, that's that's absolutely not true because we're technic technically, I suppose, games critics now. So we're we're just the scum of the earth. We we enjoy nothing about this job whatsoever, but we have no choice <laughs> to do it. So, yeah, yeah, so you, yeah, I've heard being a reviewer has a similar effect where you have to think about games in such a different way that yeah, something in you dies and you stop enjoying them. That's if you oh, take yeah. it seriously. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so look, I mean, in, in all seriousness, I, I find it a remarkable talent and, and I am very envious of, of anyone who is able to sit down and design a game and just go through iteration after iteration. Now, I mean, obviously, with the, with a catalogue such as yours, and we talked about Sushi Go, we've got Bear and Parking Gizmos and Imhotep and Cacao and Silver and Gold and Sushi Roll, Gingerbread House, and then the, you know, the newest sort of games that are coming out, particularly, I guess, the adventure games. And then we'll, we'll talk about um, Cloud City later on down the track. But there's, there's no real, you know, I've found my style of game and I just want to make the same thing over and over and I'm going to release 70 versions of Bear and Parkopoly. <laughs> is that what keeps you you're fresh and excited about game design is, is sort of looking to challenge yourself and, and try something new all the time? Well, I think I'm realizing, yeah, I don't necessarily have like a genre I stay or a kind of group of mechanisms I stay within, but I do feel like I have like a bit of an approach that I stay constant, which is trying to make incredibly approachable and accessible games, Yep. particularly games that kids and adults can play together. And so that drives me more than, you know, a certain area of, you know, mechanisms or audience or anything like that. So I guess that is an audience, Um, but that's kind of what drives me. So I enjoy exploring different ways I can achieve that. Um, And yeah, I do have a bit of an originality streak. So I don't like repeating myself too much. So if I've done one mechanism, I tend to want to try something a bit different the next time. Um, Having said that, like lately I'm discovering a bit of the joy of going back and tackling old problems again as well. But um, yeah, I guess I do try and keep myself a bit fresh. That does help me. Excellent. And as gamers, we thank you so that we don't have to play the same game with a different box over and over again. I think that one of the last games of yours that I played was actually um, Silver and Gold, you know, and it's such a, an elegant little simple mechanism. But again, it's, it's used in other games and you've managed to, to capture it really nicely. How did that game come about? Is it is it something you drew inspiration from and, and really wanted to condense down? Uh, so after I did Baron Park, I was thinking I'd like to do something even quicker and simpler with polyomino tiles. 
so I was thinking about that. And at the same time, I was also making a game using three-dimensional polyomino tiles where you build buildings out of like 3D blocks, like Tetris blocks. Yep. And um, that building game had some cool rules in it that I really liked uh, where like you had two cars in front of you, which were like building plans and you were filling in different spaces and building up and getting bonuses. But I realized the components were just so, were going to be so cost prohibitive. Yep that I kind of gave up on it. And then I thought, oh, hang on, why couldn't this just be two-dimensional? And so then those two are, two ideas kind of merged together. It didn't, uh, the only re, I didn't set out to make a game where you write on the cards um, with dry erase, but because I had been using like 3D building blocks to actually build on the card, it sort of made sense. Oh, well, I'm not using them anymore. So how about you just write on the card? So it was quite an organic, yeah, coming together with those different ideas. Okay. Um, and is is that sort of tactility something you consider? Because we obviously have the polyon omino, you know, with, with Baron Park. We've got the Imhotep cube stacking. We've got gingerbread house 3D sort of construction. Um, gizmos, obviously, with marbles and a, a, you know, a big, we'll call it a marble holder. And then obviously the adventure games where, you know, you're creating this modular board and you've got your standees and, and you know, that is, is that like a conscious decision that you're making when you design a game? I want this to go up or down or sideways or construct itself or something. Yeah. Like increasingly I realized table presence and physicality is really important. Yeah. I think when I first started designing and self-publishing, everything was so budget that I had to do everything as cheaply as I could. So when I found some publishers who were like willing to front the costs, I thought, <laughs> hey, okay, let's put in a hundred massive cubes, you know? Um, yeah, I really enjoy exploring that. And I think Gizmos was a bit of a turning point because I pitched that to Eric Lang at Simon as just a, a card game. It was just a deck of cards. And he was the one who, who really thought something physical in the game that kind of brought out the quirky inventions theme would really help the table presence and help the game. And I was a bit skeptical at first because I thought, well, I don't want a gimmick. Like if this is just a card game, let's just leave it a card game. But I think in that case, adding like a toy factor to that game actually did really help. Um, and so that, that was a, a point where I started to think more seriously about that factor, I think. Yeah. Well, the, especially I was going to say with gizmos, those, um, that, uh, pit with all the marbles and stuff in it as you say some could argue you could look at it as just a gimmick but it, the reality is that it's not when you actually play the game and you see that's kind of integral to the way that it works but even if it says was a gimmick oh it's a hell of a gimmick <laughs> yeah i mean let's not sometimes i think we need to remind ourselves we're, we're essentially playing with toys on a table yeah exactly let's, exactly let's just embrace that yeah. and um Artwork is important and so is like tactility of components. I think it's just part of the hobby. Yeah, and that was the thing, that if the game around it was garbage, which it's not, Gizmo is an awesome little game, then people would go, yeah, it has some marbles, but that's all it got. But it doesn't have that. So because it's got a good um, structure of a game around it, it elevates that beyond a gimmick as well. So they all kind of compensate and help with each other. I also think something I guess more seasoned gamers might not kind of appreciate is for kids who would not get into just a dry card game about, you know, building combos and powers. I think a lot of kids who otherwise might be a bit too young to play gizmos have dived into it 
because there is that eye candy on the table and that physicality of of drawing resources. So well, it's a ball pit, so of course they're going to dive yeah. into it, as is their want, as long as they don't, you know, put any other sort of bodily functions into there, like they do in normal ball pits. When it comes to the games that you've made, obviously Sushi Go would have been the one I think that kind of blew up massively. Like your games were always successful, but then Sushi Go was just huge in comparison to everything else. Did you would you did you work extra hard on that one and expect that that might be the answer or just just kind of happened? It's funny. I designed it pretty quickly, but I think looking back on it, so I, I published a little card game called Archaeology in two thousand and seven. And um, ever since that, I've been trying to make another like filler card game, okay, and, like a set collection filler card game, and I failed on every attempt. <laughs> and so when I got the idea to make a card drafting game uh, in the vein of Seven Wonders, which was like five years later, I had all these like failed experiments at the ready, and so once I had the structure of the game sorted. I had all these ideas ready to plug in to the different ways the cards score and a lot of the different ways Sushi Go plays out. So it came together pretty quickly, but I think it was that five years of trial and error that kind of allowed something pretty clean to be the result. For the first edition of it, I self-published it and did uh, crowdfunding. Yep. And it made like, you know, $7,000. And I had, you know, I just thought, oh yeah, this will be my next little project. So I didn't expect anything bigger than that really yeah but then when game right got interested i was pretty excited because i thought if ever there was a company that could take this to a big market it would be them so and um sushi go party which is obviously the evolution of that game did that come from uh game right or them just going right this is really successful we need more or did it come from you just going i've dipped my toe into this now people seem to like it and because of that i've displayed it so much now that I've got more ideas myself? Or was it kind of a combination of the two? It was a combo. Like they'd said they're interested in something new. And at first I thought, oh, an expansion or a sequel. And then I think I realized, or a board game. For a long time I thought, oh, there could be a board game spinoff here. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the end, I kind of threw all them into the one product. So it's like a bigger box. It feels like an expansion, but it's actually really a sequel. (laughs) And... Mm -hmm. um, I just kind of expanded the game by making it modular and obviously Dominion and a few other games inspired that approach. And I kind of gave myself this challenge, which was, yeah, how many different cards can I come up with? Can I fill a box with different unique sushi cards? And um, you certainly yeah, did. They like it. <laughs> so look, Clearly, yeah, all the sushis were uh, were a pretty amazing one and justified sushi roll as well, which we were lucky enough to play at, at BorderCon. Feels like 100 billion years ago, but was probably only two years ago as well. Yeah. But look, I just wanted to, to ask because I have to say, and I have to be honest, I wasn't a massive fan of Gingerbread House. It, it didn't set my world on fire. Was that something that had been in the in the pipeline for a, a little while, getting again that, you know, family-friendly theme and mechanics there to, to get, t- you know, a family around the table and just having a bit of fun together? Oh, yeah, that's always, I guess, what I'm thinking about in the back of my head. Um, yeah, that game uh, had been... I actually took that to Essen 2011 to yep. try and sell. So, wow. it changed, <laughs> I mean, it changed hugely in that time. But the basic yep. idea of stacking 
dominoes on top of each other to trigger things underneath that that kind of dates back all the way to to then um mm-hmm. the theming and the art uh all comes from the publisher lookout games so yep. i submitted it uh you were building a chocolate factory hey uh, now we're talking chocolate the, factories the way of the future i had like four different themes on that prototype so i could never really settle on it that's all right it's, it's good <laughs> i i I must say there's probably a fair bit of not enjoying the game so much with the company that we were playing it with, Leon. Yeah, well, I was the most hungover I've possibly been in my entire <laughs> life. So I remember being like, I think this is all right, but I honestly can't really tell because at the moment all the people I'm sitting around me are drinking and I'm hungover from the night before, so I just wanted to die. So that's my memory when I think of that game. I, was, I just see the cover and feel sick. So I apologise for that. <laughs> Yikes. Well, um there's a review right there (laughs) absolutely yeah but what do you consider to be your your heaviest or your most complicated game to date anyway what's the one that's really you know been that brain burner one for for you and maybe for the the people who get to play it around the table um that's a good i mean that's something you're probably better off answering than me um i feel like to me gizmos feels the heaviest in the sense that even from the very beginning of the game, uh, there's nine cards on the table you've got to read and get understand the powers. And once you start comboing stuff, you might have, you know, 10 different uh, powers going off in front of you. So that feels the most complex to me. Yep. Although some people probably would say Imhotep has more like brain burny. If I do this and you do this, then I do this, then you do this, then I move this here and this happens. So um, yeah, it's probably one of those two. I would, I would say. What do you think out of the ones you've played? Well, I think all the most of the games that you've played, even with Gizmos, they've all been light, which is fine because you're very good at it, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with staying in the lane that you're very good at. Um, my question would be: Do you have, and I'm sure you do, after talking to all the different designers, the amount of the amount of games they have in like a little checkbook or messages on their phone. Do you have a, a heavier game in you, do you think, Phil? Do you think you have what we've talked about for years, that properly Australian design funded everything big box game? I don't know. I, I hope so, because I think one of my little subconscious goals I've realised that I've got is to, like, publish an Aaliyah big box game. Like, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, because I, I mean, I like some heavier stuff for sure. But yeah, it's just not really where my design brain goes. But every time I've tried to design a heavier game, I don't know what happens. I just <laughs> it off and it's like, here's yummy world for you. Like, I just can't do it. Like, my brain just has to strip away um, things that don't need to be there. And I just don't know how to start with something so big that when you strip everything away, it's still a reasonably complex game. I don't have to worry about that because um, even though I haven't played it, I've only seen the guys talk about it. You look at something like On Mars that has 10 Bisquillian ideas and rules. Apparently, you can just do that and release that and it, and everyone will be happy with it. So just do that if you want. Just the, the next 10 games you have lined up, just chuck them all into one game and you'll be fine. It can just be 10 different filler games you play based on moving on a board in the middle. There you go. It's actually not a bad idea, to be honest. It's not a bad idea at all. Well, you just take the Comet and Cyclades crossover sort of um, pack and take it to the extreme level and, and maybe just do the, the Phil Walker Harding collection as one mega game. Sushi of the Pharaohs. 
exactly. I'd be down with that with, with be- in a park with bears and marbles. I'd, I'd be well down for that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, look, we better move on to the newer stuff. Adventure games, hey? They're a thing, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never thought I'd be like involved in like a series, an ongoing series of games, but um, me and Matthew Dunstan pitched this idea to Cosmos and they were looking for like the next series to do after Exit. Mm-hmm. And they wanted something a bit more narrative-based because, you know, time stories and legacy games were kind of the hot thing. Absolutely. And so we were like, oh, that's amazing. But it's been such a different process because... It's like, I guess you now got this whole team of people working on this series and we're just one, I mean, we're a cog in that wheel. So yep. it's a very different process, but it's been really interesting. Yeah. So is it is it two or three released so far? There's the Dungeon Monochrome Inc. Has Volcanic Island been released? It's been yet? out in German for a while, but it's only yep. just come out in English. Okay. just about to come out in English, yeah. And then we've got Grand Hotel, is it Abaddon? Yep. Abaddon? Yeah, so that is about to come out in German. Yep. And so it will be English probably next probably next year, I'd say, yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, I've played the uh, the dungeon. Leon's played Monochrome Inc., haven't you, Leon? That's how, how we, we've got it. Yep. I've got Monochrome Inc. sitting over there ready to, to be played. But, yeah, it, it must be a very different process to what you've been used to, even just collaborating with Matt, I, I'm presuming, via the wonders of the internet and uh, and having, a, having this team. So you guys come up with... With what? What's the process that's been behind, you know, here's the pitch we need to, to get this kind of game to what appears on our shelves? Yeah, so it's been different for each uh, title. So when we came up with the system, um, Cosmos, we, we designed like this mini adventure to show them to kind of prove the system worked. And they're like, okay, this is cool. Come back to us with like two completed scenarios. So I went and designed the dungeon and yep. Matt went and designed Monochrome Inc., and like with with the system in mind and then we took them took it back to them and they kind of workshopped some of the narrative elements with us and play te- did a little play testing and tweaking so the, the first two were very much i did one and matt did one and then the third one was almost entirely a in-house cosmos um thing so they decided there was a direction they wanted to experiment in so they just kind of ran with it and that was actually really good because I think it helped them understand the process by doing one just completely themselves. So that was the Volcanic Island. And we were more like consultants on that, I guess. So we did testing and sure. troubleshooting, but no kind of main design work. And then the fourth one um, was kind of a mix. So they presented the theme to us. Matt and I designed it collaboratively. And then it kind of was handed back to them to do some fine tuning. And from the fourth one on, they're also bringing in like professional writers to do the prose. Oh, wow. Pretty cool. So the first two, we just tried to, you know, write. And, you know, we're not (laughs) the worst writers in the entire world, but we are by no means good at it either. So um, there was a lot of extra work that went into polishing that up. So now the process is really interesting because we kind of present this not very well written version and they'll bring in some author whose whole job is to write stories and they'll kind of like yeah. rewrite the prose um, on the skeleton of the game. So, yeah. Fantastic. But, but surely talking about your, your little, you know, if I, if I like something, I need to, to do it myself. It must be able to scratch several itches. It must, must be able to do that design itch, that 
authorage. You're, you're basically directing a movie in the way that this, this story does progress. Yeah, I mean, it does feel... Are you like... working on a soundtrack for it as well or what? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it does feel a bit like writing a book while you're designing a game because even in the most basic form, you need to describe in the paragraphs what's happening. And yeah. so you can't help but, you know, be a little bit colourful and then the next thing you know, you've written three paragraphs on the creaky door opening. <laughs> um, I think it proved to me that I, yeah, while there's something still attractive to me about writing and being a writer, it's just not my wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Know your limits. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like this is, is not a series that's going away anytime soon. Well, the, f- the first few have done really well in Germany. They've done pretty well. In- they've done well in English too, but they've done particularly well over there. So I think Cosmos is keen so we've talked up until about the next at least two or three. We've got plans. Yep. Um, but I think they're taking it kind of two or three at a time. Um, yeah, that's still pretty good. I mean, if, if it ain't broke, why, why change it, you know? Yeah, and I think there's lots of room to explore. So the first two were really <clears throat> just... It was a bit scary putting them out because I think we knew they were really just us getting used to the system ourselves and not really knowing exactly what it fully could do yet. And I think each number three and number four, each add some pretty cool mechanisms that we didn't even think of at the start. So I think it could evolve. And is it, is it something to say that these are the games that they're kind of hoping get a little SDJ love at some point, you know, similar to how exit series have done in the past? Well, they were eligible this past um, SDJs and they didn't get anything. So I guess not. No. So you got to try harder, (laughs) I guess. Um, it's funny. I think they've hit the same market as Exit, which is like, um, in Germany anyway, which is like more casual gamers who are willing to pick up a cheap impulse buy to, to play yeah. and not particularly concerned with, you know, something that they can play a hundred times or anything like that. I think they've kind of yeah. hit that market in Germany pretty well. Yeah, I guess you don't really need to have that badge of SDJ on it to sell it when you could literally have it on the counter and have the salesperson say, this is 20 quid and it's a good laugh and it's good fun. Yep. So that's always a bonus. If you, It's amazing. If you look at the German Amazon top 100 board games, yep. like half of them are exit games. Yeah. And I don't think the SDJ would have made a huge impact in that, in that mm. rare case because they just became such a, a force over there of um, yeah. popular Fantastic. series. Yeah. Hmm. Well, look, let me just say that if you do need anyone to help with, with voiceover for the accompanying app, just, just let us know. We can, we can do very, very good voiceover work if the, if the payment if is If right. we set one scenario in Tasmania, yep. then you'll be first on my list. For... Absolutely. I don't know if I can do a Tasmanian accent, though. No. That would be weird. God, no. We could try, <laughs> but we, yeah. we can dumb it down a little bit, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, now, what's the newest hotness from Phil Walker-Harding apart from these adventure games you've seen and, uh, and loved? Ah, uh, Garth, I'm going to cut you off what? there. You know better. We're going to talk about that in the next section. He's going, ooh, to, be the, ooh, he's okay. going to be the headlining act for his new game Woo-hoo. that is going to announce that is going to be coming out soon. Don't you go stepping right. on my toes, young man, with your fancy interview with your famous friends. <laughs> Fine. Well, in that case, Phil, what do you actually play? Because I've talked to plenty of designers and... They say that designing games does take a bit of the love out of playing them because all you're doing is going, I could do that better or that mechanic is good or bad or somewhere in between. 
is there your staple? I mean, I can I can see that there is some games that you you probably own somewhere. So what is what is your you know bring the mates around and uh, and hit the table? Is there something or some things that are regulars? No, I still love playing games. Like um, it feels different to before, but I still get I still want to play as much as I did. Um, so I guess I have some people I game with where I would play. Um, slightly heavier Euro-y stuff. And then most of the other people I game with are much more casual gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's much more fillers and party games and that kind of thing. So it depends yep. on the group. I was actually just thinking about what I've been playing a lot of recently. Cause of course this year, I think everybody's game playing is very different. Um, yeah. So more party games, like heaps of just one on zoom and in person. Um, right. I've been finishing Pandemic Legacy Season 2 with some friends. Um, A a little card game I really got into is, I don't know if you've played the Abyss card game? No. I I haven't handed it to Garth yet. I got that about a month ago and played it once or twice so far. And yeah, it's it's good stuff. Yeah, Yeah, it's a really cool little design that I've played a bunch. So yeah, I'm always looking out for the, like, I'm a bit out of the loop with what's new in the heavier categories, but certainly in terms of little fillers, I'm always trying to grab the latest little card games that come out and see what people are doing. Well, there's um, people stepping on your toes. That's why we can't be having that. <laughs> yeah. Back up. Yeah. Actually when um, point salad came out, I was like, I should have designed this. Like this <laughs> the most case of that ever. Where's yeah. That's <laughs> That's awesome. But how have you found the whole lockdown and, you know, the, 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 the whole scope of, of not travelling to conventions and changing the way I guess you have to interact with your contemporaries and your customer base? Um, have you found that you've, you've managed the adaptation, you know, well, I guess? Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. So some things I've really missed, but then other things, because I work from Australia and we're a little bit, well, very much removed, I guess, from the American and the European industry. So I always feel a bit on the outer. So I haven't kind of felt I've suddenly been cut off, but I have missed, I usually go to an international convention or two each year. And I kind of missed that moment this year of just connecting with other designers and publishers. I mean, but most of all, I think I just miss like pretty regular gaming. That's the main thing I felt most, quite a lot of publishers actually been really good at, um, making themselves more available online and uh, a couple of publishers have run online pitch days. So okay. uh, Ravensburger and um, Eggetspiel, they both just set up like just booking sheets and said, just book in a time, uh, pop on zoom, pitch us anything you want, you know, which is in a way like better access. <laughs> like it means I don't have to Absolutely. fly to Germany. <laughs> um <laughs> So yeah, I haven't felt a, the business strain of it much, but yeah, socially, I've obviously felt it like all of us. Um, yeah, yeah. And the good thing about these Zoom meetings is you don't even have to wear pants, so it's like that's awesome. <laughs> oh, I mean, to be fair, you could probably do them at the international cons anyway, and just go, "I'm Australian," and they'll just <laughs> they'll just go, "Oh, it must be an Australian thing." We don't know; it's too far to go down there and check anyway. <laughs> so, speaking of which. We are going to have to have a little bit of a break now because we are going to talk about uh, a little con, I say a little con, that normally 
get a good few hundred thousand people through the door that happened recently, but slightly different this year than what has normally gone down because there was not a single person that attended. When you actually Google it, it says no no actual people attended this event. <laughs> I was like, oh, it <laughs> looks like a bit of a failure considering the 300,000 that they had the year before. So that will be, uh, yes, we will talk about Gen Con, but we will do that after the break. So we just need to mention once again that we are brought to you by our good friends at LFG Australia. Check them out at lfg-aus.com. Send them some money and they'll send you some games. I know it seems like such a complicated system, but it actually works really, really well. And I recommend doing it because you shouldn't go outside. You should stay inside and be healthy and happy with your family. So we are the Dice Ben Cometh. We are here with our good friend Phil Walker-Harding and we'll be right back after this. G'day, my name's David. I'm from Grail Games. And when I want to listen to an Aussie podcast, I listen to the Dice Men Cometh. And there you go. That was someone with something, or it was a Patreon ad, or it was Leon talking about something else, but you're back with the Dice Men Cometh. Thanks and proudly sponsored by LFG. Please go to their website, spend all their money and that, no, your own money. Spend your own money, not their money. And they will exchange your money for goods and or services. Now, Leon. Yes, sir. You want to talk about a global convention that happened because the physical one didn't is that right yes pretty much so just recently it would have been gen con and as we the boys were just talking about we've all felt the sting of not being able to get around the table with friends that we only see a couple of times a year normally with hundreds of people walking around us in various different sorts of cosplay uh but yeah gen con is the mac daddy especially in north america and this year sadly uh there was not two hundred thousand people descending on um it's Indiana, I believe it is, in Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Uh, sadly, yep. that didn't happen. But what they decided to do instead was that they went, well, everyone around the world is luckily enough to got their hands on the internet and we're still going to do something because people you know, want to see about the games that are coming up. And the board game industry has actually grown quite a bit this year despite the chaos that's been going on. So they did a bit of an online Gen Con where they had different designers talking about games that are coming up. They had you know, thousands of people playing together online on all the various different platforms. So it might not have had you know, the buzz and the impact of all the people sitting around. Uh, but they still managed to put something together, which was pretty cool. Um, Phil, did you have anything to do with the the online Gen Con this year at all? No, I didn't. Although um, I kind of did with the on. Well, it hasn't happened yet, but the UK Games Expo is doing a similar thing. Yep. And me and Matt Dunstan have been involved in that a little bit, so that was kind of fun to record an interview for that. And yep. But yeah, very yep. different to a usual convention event. Yes, it sure would be. So, like I said, um, there are lots of different games that were kind of announced. Some of these, there's not much information known on at the moment. So I just went through the the list the other day and I picked out about a dozen or a little bit more games that interested me and I thought we could have a cheeky chat about for various different reasons. So I'm going to start with a game that's nice and shiny and fun, and that is Santorini, a game that the Dice Men are big fans of. A new version of that called Santorini New York by Roxley and Spin Master Games, whereas as opposed to building up little um, little houses in Santorini, funnily enough, and you yep. don't have to worry about gods kicking around anymore, in the New York version, you are there's different workers you're going to be taking control of. You're going to be taking control of people like taxi drivers, like firefighters, like engineers, all the people that built New York, or more specifically Manhattan at the turn of the century. Uh, it looks really cool, and this is one of those games that I've, I think we've said for years that it's so simple, and you can play it with any age. For you know, it takes five minutes, but it probably should be on nearly everyone's collection because it is just 
an abstract game that they've put a theme on top of it. And it's good to see that it's going to get a bit more love now. Yeah, I, I like the sound of this. I, I find it a bit weird just thinking about, you know, Santorini, my, my mind doesn't go straight to then a New York version of it. No. So no. I'd be curious how it's different. And, you know, if the, the various workers and what have you have powers to, to do stuff. Um, well, they do. It, like curious. I said, it's basically kind of a reskin, but it's a retheming as well. And they've got there'll be some new abilities because of like the new characters and things like that. But uh, uh, are they just are they adding New York because a lot of Americans don't know where Santorini is? I mean, to be fair, I probably didn't know where Santorini was myself until the game became a thing. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> the little bit I've read about it, it does sound pretty different in the sense that the like the way you build is the same. It yep. sounds like it's quite a different multiplayer game. Because, um, yeah, when I first heard about it, I thought, okay, this looks amazing, but how yep. do you just throw five players onto a Santorini board and it not just be crazy? But yep. when I read a bit of the rules, I was like, oh, this is really quite a different um, turn structure and stuff. So Yeah, because Santorini, Santorini plays really well at um, both two, three, and four, but predominantly I think it was a two-player game for most people. So with this one going up to five, it's it's definitely quite interesting. Okay, so the next game I'm going to be talking about is a game that the boys mentioned a bit earlier, and it's a game that has inspired or launched a thousand ships, I would say, and that is the 10th year anniversary of Seven Wonders. So they're doing a new version of Seven Wonders, which is got, it's pretty much the same game, roughly 99%, but it's got a new streamlined rulebook, which I think is a very important thing because I I would argue nearly any rule book from 10 years ago, you could probably look at now and go, ooh, ooh something should be done about that. As well as it comes with, um, it's a bigger box and there's a new insert as long as some new art. So because of course this game has so many different expansions, it makes sense to have a bigger insert and whatnot. I must say that Seven Wonders is a game that didn't grip me overly, but that was because by the time I'd played it, I already played a lot of the games that had come afterwards that kind of I enjoyed a little bit more. Um, but yeah, but as Phil said, it kind of inspired him with things like Sushi Go and whatnot. And then, yeah, it's going to sell lots of copies. So is it an actual big spot, big box version or is it just the base no, game re-release? it's just a re-release of the original Seven Wonders, just streamlined version. It's not a big box that you could fit everything in. It's a bigger yeah. box that you could put some of the expansions in, I believe. Um, but I think it actually said somewhere that I read that and now, don't quote me on this because, again, this is early information. I believe that it's kind of like they're probably going to be doing a lot of the expansions again as well in this newer style and then kind of going from there. Yeah, I think it's like yeah. the um, Catan and Carcassonne reboots where they update the art and start the line again. But it's like, yeah, 99% the same thing. Just looks yeah. better. Oh, look, yeah, I've, I've found uh, a whole bunch of extra love for Seven Wonders because, again, similar to Leon, I'd... I'd played it and then I'd played a lot of other games, including Sushi Go and Sushi Go Party and gone, you know, why do I need to go Seven Wonders when there's there's games that do it differently or better? But I've been playing Seven Wonders a lot on Board Game Arena. Um, it's a lot easier to get a game of that than it is to get a game of Sushi Go, Phil, I must say. I don't know if you can talk to someone about making sure there's more games of that going on on Board Game Arena. Not enough kids on that site. No, exactly right. <laughs> But no, look, that'll that'll sell. I mean, people who've got the first versions will buy the 10-year edition and then they'll buy the expansions again. There's there's no shortage of completionists in this hobby. Something interesting to me is I looked into what some of the differences were 
And apparently there's all these really subtle differences in the costs for the wonder stages. Ooh. So like, instead of paying three stone for this stage, it's like two wood and a paper. And you're like, <laughs> I just, my design brain is like, I, I can't even get into the maths of how that is better or different or anything. <laughs> it was important enough for Antoine that he was like, no, nope, we're redoing all the wonder costs. So, well, I think that's fair enough because a lot of the time your stage one wonder can be completed in stage one or age one. Whereas if you're adding in the paper or, or something that usually doesn't come out maybe until, until the second age, that's going to mix up strategies. Who knows? Yeah. I'm sure if you play it like at a very high level, I'm sure you would pick up on slight imbalances and things like that across the wonders, but I, I've never been able to see that. Either way, it'll sell and make a bajillion dollars so good on them. <laughs> now, next, I especially want to know what Phil thinks about this because, again, a lot of these games have only just been announced. There's not a lot of information on a lot of them, which I'll get to actually in a game a couple from now. Uh, the next one I'm going to talk about is New York Zoo by a Mr. UA Rosenberg. And what I've written here, just one sentence, basically bear and park with cute little animals. What's going on here? He's, he's just completely and utterly stolen every idea you've ever had, mate. What's going on? Did I not steal patchwork though? <laughs> I was going to not bring that up because it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's fine. But yeah, no, as soon as I saw it, I just went, hang on, we're talking to Phil. And this literally, if he'd said to me, this is a new and improved version of Baron Park, I would have went, all right, cool. Surely you can't do anything except admire that it's a, it's a genre that is, again, it, it just makes life easy and accessible for younger gamers, I think. It, and it means you can play it and have satisfaction about completing spaces, yep. even if you don't win. And I like that idea. Yep. And and I get that people joke a little bit about Rosenberg doing the same thing again and again and again. Um, but I think in this case, like, even though there's obviously been many Polyomino games before Patchwork, he did kind of capture something in that game that launched, uh, you know, a whole lot of designers to go back to that piece yeah. of, of um, <laughs> that game piece. So good on him, I say. Excellent. Well, it's good to see that there's no animosity there after he completely ripped you off. And I'll tell him that. <laughs> no, I, no, I won't. He won't. He, he's nice. I like him. Hello, Yui. Anyway, so we're moving on to a game by another Australian. We are moving on to Funfair by Joel Finch, a friend of ours. Uh, it is a standalone game in the Unfair universe. It is a lighter and faster introduction to Unfair's theme park building. It's a faster setup, faster gameplay. It only has positive player interaction. So mm. Unfair's kind of later half of the game wanting to murder each other, slightly different. Uh, but it also has like, you know, new goals, new cards, uh, new ways of building, tight combos and stuff. So, yeah, so it's kind of just a newer version of Unfair, even though it's kind of still similar, which is good to see because Joel has worked extremely hard on Unfair. Every Bordercon, we see him putting new expansions to the test and whatever else, and it's a game that has been around for a while now, but it's got plenty of legs when it comes to that expansion, and it's good to see a kind of a new game in that universe. Yeah, absolutely, and I think Mark and I had a chance to play Funfair either at a Bordercon or a PAX a couple of years ago. Um, so it's good to see this having the light of day. I mean, personally, I love the meanness of Unfair. Um, it is heartbreaking if you are the victim of some bad stuff, but that's the game and 
you got to go into the game knowing it, it could be tough. So if Funfair opens it up and gets more people to play Joel's games, then, then that's a good thing. Yes. Yes, indeed. Now, the next one is a, an expansion for a little game called Twilight Imperium. <laughs> so Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, which the Dice Men still haven't played yet, and we need to rectify that. So much so that even though it's not my favourite game ever, I did consider buying it this week just because this new expansion, ooh, ooh it looks interesting. <laughs> I think you should definitely do that, Leo. Okay, fine, I will. <laughs> Anywho, so the the base game of 4th edition has 17 races. Well, this new version, this new Prophecy of Kings expansion has another seven. So there'll be 24 races altogether in this game. And you can also now play up to eight players oh, because God. six wasn't enough. And it's going to add things like uh, unique leader cards, which arrive to support the various different factions. There's now going to be big mechs that you can use, as well as all the different kinds of spaceships. You'll be venturing out into new and uh, new undisclosed areas of space uh, with different planets to discover and kind of an, a new event deck. And on top of that, it adds more stuff to the base game. So new action cards, agenda cards, technologies, legendary planets, heaps of stuff. So it adds everything you want to add to the base game plus a bit more. So this game is, you know, even though it's been around a long time, it's just not slowing down. And my God, does it look pretty? Yeah. If if you've got a spare weekend, I guess it sounds like an eight player game of Twilight Imperium. Man. Oh man. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's, that's hardcore. Don't you reckon Phil? Yeah. I've never played this game. Um, Wow. Never any version. Never any version. I, Okay. I'm very much the, well, I could play that or 16 other things. <laughs> uh, but I would like to, I would like to try it sometime. But um, it seems to get away with being overwrought. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's one of the few games where people kind of say, oh, the fact that it takes too long and sucks your whole weekend up, that's a feature. Like, that's good. Yeah. Um, and this expansion seems to from the little bit I read, it seems like revel in how big and bloated it's making the game. So, I mean, that's pretty amazing that it can pull that off, that people go to it for that experience, I suppose. Yeah, because it would be one of those things that you'd buy and you might play it once a year, if not once every couple of years. So, you know, your, your dollar per play is always going to be pretty high with a game like this. But if you get eight eight people around a table and eight people enjoying it, which I think will be the challenge, then uh, it's probably money well spent for one person to have to fork it out, Leon. <laughs> Fine. I'm actually going to double up on the Patreon ads this episode. <laughs> no, we don't use Patreon ads people to buy video, to buy games. We use it to come see people because we're nice. But yes, yeah. no, I'm looking forward to having another deeper look at that and to whether I want to buy it or not because I've, been played it, I've only played it like twice myself, but it is one of those things that it's, yes, there's some issues with it, but once a year, even once every other year, it's it's a belting day for, yeah. between a good amount of people. Uh, and then the next game I want to talk about is called Deranged. Now, just listen to this description, Garth, and tell me what you think. It is a gothic semi-co-op adventure survival game in which you fight rivals, horrific monsters, and your own inner demons. It includes deck-building elements, and each player has their own hidden objective. The game board is modular and the game includes miniatures that represent the players, both as humans and the members of the deranged monsters. Now, has somebody designed a game specifically for me and just <laughs> left it there for me to discover? Because I'm pretty sure that's what's happened here. Yeah, it, it does sound like you being squished into a box, Leon. That's 
pretty much it. And and for a bigger lad, I couldn't quite do that. I'm quite flexible. <laughs> so so you didn't design that one, Phil? That's not one of yours? Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a silent co-designer on this, actually. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Ah, ghostwriter. Well done. Good to see. Either way, that is a game <laughs> that is coming soon. And our friends at um, Meeple University have actually played a prototype of this, and they said that it is very, very cool. So that is one I'll be looking forward to. Now, the next one, as I said, since Gen Con has just happened and a lot of this is just, this game is coming at some point, there's not a lot of information about it. This next one, I may have hallucinated them both because since seeing them be announced, I can now find no information on them whatsoever. <laughs> and that is Pandasaurus Games that made Dinosaur Island, which was a big hit for them, even though we didn't love it, but we didn't hate it. It was fine. They announced, unless I made this up, they announced Dinosaur World, which is kind of like the unfair to funfair. It's a kind of a newer version in, in that universe, as well as they announced Dinosaur Island, Raw and Right. So a roll and write version somewhat of Dinosaur Island. But again, since I saw them and went, oh, I'll write them down and research them later, I can now find no information on them. So I've just announced them here on this show. Oh, I've never. <laughs> there, there's that. Excellent. Well, I'll trust you, Leon, because I've done even less research than you have, yes. which is zero. Oh, I have no so, doubt about that. Yeah. But yeah, so that, that's a thing. The next one here, from Restoration Games, the people that have brought you in recent years, Fireball Island, which was um, a big success, the revamped version of that, and the revamped version of Dark Tower, which should be coming from Kickstarter very, very soon. Mm. They are doing a game, which is now... Garth, you would know when you were younger, you had Hero Quest, which was a big game in the, I think it was. I still have Hero Quest. Mid to late 80s kind of thing. There was a game that was like that for me in the early 90s, which was a game that I remember from childhood, then it disappeared. And when I saw it years later, I was like, oh, and all the nostalgia came flooding back. And that was a game called Key to the Kingdom. Okay. So they. I don't even know it. Yes. Well, that's the thing. I don't think it was that well known, but it was really cool and it involved a board where once you went into a whirlpool in the center of it, the board would then open up into like a whole nother board, which blew my tiny little like seven-year-old mind. So Restoration Games are doing a new version of that. And I'm very, very excited. So this is kind of just a public service announcement that when that comes out as a Kickstarter, if all of our fans could back that, please, so I could get some more stretch goals, <laughs> I'd be much appreciative. I'd never heard of this either, but it looks, I'm just looking at it on Board Game Geek. It looks yeah. really cool. Yeah, like I said, it starts off, there's like a smaller board and there's like different places you can go to these different castles and you're trying to get keys. But then when you go to these whirlpools, as I said, the board literally opens up. So the game itself is, you know, it's roll to move because it's 30 years old or whatever. But, you know, it had all the trappings of like a D&D style light board game. So I really loved it back in the day and I'm looking forward to playing it again. Well, I think Fireball Island proved that you put something out there, there's going to be you plus hundreds of thousands of fellow Leons who will back something that takes them straight back to that absolute awe and excitement of getting a, a game when you're a kid. So exactly. that's cool. Bring that love to gamers is fantastic. Okay. So we've got a few other ones here that there's not much information on at the moment. So I'm just going to kind of go through them. There is a very popular video game called Darkest Dungeon. They're going to do yeah. a board game version of that. Uh, I have a few friends that are huge fans of this game. And yeah, it's cool. It's really good, that game. I like it. Yeah. So, and after the success of things like this War of Mine and something like that, it's a theme that could definitely use a board game quite easily. So why not? Yep. Then we have got um, the Unmatched games, which we haven't played yet. 
on this show, which is one of those games that I probably should buy, so I probably will. Mm. There's an expansion for that that just came out, which is Cobble and Fog, which brings you like your Draculas, your Sherlocky Holmes, your Jekyll and Hyde type folk. They've announced the new one, which is on the way, which is from the Buffy series from the 90s, back when, you know, I was cool. (laughs) So you could play as Buffy and Angel and Willow and all that kind of jazz. So that'll be cool to add them to, because we always wanted to see Buffy the Vampire Slayer fight Bruce Lee. It was bound to, you know, (laughs) come into our mind sooner or later. Uh, Then we've got from Fantasy Flight, that tiny little company, we've got uh, X-Men Mutant Insurrection. Now, the reason I put this down is because I love me X-Men, always have, even though they've had a bit of a short shrift in some films of late, but that's beside the point. Um, so this is a, it's a fast-paced, cooperative, dice-driven card game for one to six players, lots of dice rolling, lots of characters, lots of flashy fantasy flight type stuff. Is it going to be the greatest game ever made? I doubt it, but it's got X-Men in it and you get to roll dice. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Are you still trying to get every X-Men game ever made, Leon? No, I'd love to, because there was one that came out uh, just before the kind of big boom of board games, I think in the late 2000s, where um, oh, it wasn't just an X-Men game, it was a Marvel game where there was like the Fantastic Four, there was four X-Men, there was four Avengers and stuff. And you kind of traveled the world and did like, it's almost like a light version, very light version of like Eldritch Horror. I was like, that sounds amazing. But they never reprinted it because licensing, licensing went mad. Yeah, okay. But it looked really cool. Now we move on to a game. Sorry, do you reckon that this looks like um, a reskin of Elder Sign? That's what I originally thought. That's what I originally thought that it might be. That it's going. I definitely think it's got some DNA to it, yeah. just based off the dice and kind of the way that it looks. Whether it actually, I mean, if it is awesome, that's fine by me. <laughs> they can do they that. Have different designers and stuff, but yeah, my first thought was, oh, they've just reskinned Elder Sign, but no, it does look a bit different. But yeah, excellent. Uh, then we're going to move on to a game that I'm about to mispronounce because it is a German name and it is Feinerbend. Yeah, I did that completely wrong. Either way, it's <laughs> finishing time for those of us that speak uh, English, um, which is a new Freedom and Freeze game. And it is basically a game where for one to six players, you work a job, but then you've got your personal life as well. So you're aiming to improve the, your workplace for you and all your fr- fellow workers and then having the best personal life as well. So having the most money to go out and do all sorts of crazy activities on the weekend as well. Which just, as somebody that works in a factory and works like 12-hour night shifts, this this suits me down to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) I do like the idea of this. I like the sound of this. Mm. Um, So I'll be curious because... Sometimes I love these games. Sometimes I go, oh, they're a bit weird. Yeah. So I hope it's a very freedom and freeze theme, isn't it? Like, very sure is. As soon as I saw the box, I was like, well, I know who this is by. So, (laughs) but it ain't a bad thing. Uh, Betrayal at Mystery Mansion. Everyone's played Betrayal at House on Haunted Hill and gone, this is all well and good. But imagine if Scooby Doo was here. Well, now you can do it because why not? (laughs) That will be a hit. Don't worry about that. Yeah. yeah. And I'll probably have to buy it, even though I don't really want to, but I'll probably have to. Uh, Cartographer Heroes, which is a sequel to the critically acclaimed Cartographer game, which was nominated for... What was it nominated for? Kennespiel. Kennespiel, mm. yes. Uh, I haven't actually played it yet. Garth, did you play Cartographers yet? No, no, I didn't. Phil, I didn't Phil take you've played it. You love yeah, it? Yeah, I played it, yep. You're good? Yeah, yeah. It's um, Sweet. Yep, silver and gold, more complex... But that sort of game, drawing polyominoes on a map. 
Excellent. Well, you can't go wrong. That is all the rage at the moment. Uh, yeah. Everyone loves <laughs> them shapes. Now, finally, before we move on to, to, to Phil's new one, we've got the last one here, which is a game which Garth knows more about than I do, but is connected to a theme which I've played a lot more of late. And it is a new Dungeons and Dragons themed edition of the Great Del Muti. Ooh. So the Great Del okay. is a game that was originally by Richard Garfield quite a long time ago. Um, and is now going to be re-released with a D&D theme. So there you go. Okay, I dare say that the theme might be pasted on. <laughs> but the fact that it's a new edition and it's got a popular IP on it, I, I dare say that as well. I'm surprised they've well, kept the title. Yeah. Because I don't know yeah. what the... Is there a Dalmuti in... In the DND, I mean, there is now. At the end of the day, there there can be now. So I guess they just kind of went, well, we're not going to lose sales by putting this weird name on it. As long as it's got DD written on it, some people will buy it. As long as it's got the great Del Muti on it, the odd board game, you know, fanatic will buy it. So why not? Let's call it the Great Beholder or something. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, look, if if it's exactly the same game as the Great Del Muti, get plenty of people around a table, have fun. Um, it's a simple, fun game, and we played it for years and years, almost at every BorderCon for, for oh, until, well, since I started going to BorderCon, basically well, that long ago. Hopefully, next year we'll be having a crack at this one. And yeah. finally, to finish off this list of me, pr- uh, surely that's it. There's no, nothing else we need to talk about. I is think it? there's one more to finish off the list of me prattling on. There's this little game that looks like utter rubbish, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Uh, oh. Cloud City, <laughs> Phil, as your yeah. neck snaps back into place. <laughs> We've left the best for last, sir. Please tell us about Cloud City, a game that I believe... Surely it's a Star Wars game, yeah? Star Wars? You'd hope so. Uh, no, although every time it gets mentioned anywhere, there's Lando jokes. Of course there is. There has to be. Uh, yeah, so this is um, my latest game coming out from Blue Orange. It's a tile lane game. Um, so you're building a little city in the clouds in front of you uh, made out of tiles. But... Uh, what makes it kind of a bit more interesting than that sounds is um, you're building in three dimensions. So as you place a tile, every tile has two spots on it where you build towers of different heights. And when you have towers um, in the same row or column as each other, you can build essentially bridges between them, walkways between them. So you're trying to build these connecting walkways at three different levels so they can kind of pass under and over each other. So it's kind of like, yeah, playing three levels of this connection game at once as you, as you lay the tiles. So it's pretty simple. Um, but if you want to think hard about it, it, it's a bit of a brain burning puzzle as well. And there's an advanced mode in it, which kind of kicks that up a bit. Um, yep. But if you, if you've played the Baron park expansion with the monorails, it's kind of Haven't like similar to that system where you're building like a, a pathway, but elevated. Yeah. Yep. All right. And is it going to be orthogonally or will you be able to go at different angles for, for these walkways and bridges? Orthogonal only. This is an okay. city of the future. <laughs> only right angles. Fantastic. Because, yeah, I could only see a, a picture of the box lid, I think, on, uh, on BGG. So, yeah, I'm, I'll be curious to see. So this is just going straight out into, into retail space, is it? Yep. So I think end of September it'll be released. Um, a few mm-hmm. people... There's a few videos of it around. People have started getting advanced copies and stuff. So it's one of those games where, yeah, seeing it in action kind of explain, you know, you just watch two turns and you get how it works. Yeah. Okay. 
Fantastic. And uh, how long has this one been in the books for? Is this something you designed in you know, 1999? No, no. Uh, this is actually, uh, I, this is one of my quicker turnarounds, I guess. So I pitched this to Blue Orient. I designed this quite quickly, which is, which is rare for me, but it came together <laughs> really quick when I was prepping for Essen 2018. Yeah. And they picked it up straight away and... Yeah, it's out, coming out soon. So that's almost two years, I guess, which is pretty quick, okay. <laughs> average to quick. Um, yep. But yeah, the idea just hit me quite, and then it just worked. It's one of those rare occasions where the, the core of the game was just pretty good from the first prototype. And, yep. um, and it was just a matter of doing a lot of fine tuning and coming up with the advanced rules and... Um, yeah, the prototype took a little bit to build too because it's 3D, but um, really glad our Blue Orange saw the potential in my glued together Imhotep blocks. <laughs> yeah. That is fantastic. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to, to seeing it uh, seeing it in action online and in real life at some point down the track. That sounds exciting. Cool. And what's what's the future hold, Phil? Before we let you go, what else have you got in the in the works that you can let us know about, or is it just uh, sit back and wait and see? Um, yeah, I don't know if anything. I mean, I'm happy to talk about everything that's in the pipeline, but some publishers, you know, understandably, that's fair enough, don't like to have stuff out there before it's announced. I guess um, there's more adventure games coming. There's expansions for stuff coming. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, silver and gold ish spin-off-y type games coming and I've also been really pushing myself to try and design a good party game so I have a couple I don't know if they're good but they're party games which have been signed so over the next couple years hopefully that they'll see the light of day is a very different yeah muscle to uh, exercise so, so basically, everyone out there, fret not, you will get your Phil Walker-Harding fix for at least the next couple of years coming, that's for sure. Yes, I think that's true. Excellent, which is what we want to hear. We don't need to know the specifics because we know that they're going to be good because everything that you've done is good, relatively. <laughs> I, heard, wow. I heard the monochrome ink review. Yes. We don't need it. We do Someone had it. to be the negative guy. We couldn't all just gush about it. <laughs> No, but as I said off air, Matt actually designed that. Scenario. Yeah, we blame that all on Matt yeah, when you weren't listening up. We forgot to tell you. <laughs> Stupid. Well, surely Matt's going to be designing a Eurovision-themed adventure game at some Ooh. point. That's a great idea. He loves his Eurovision. He does. Oh, say patent pending. Yeah. I can see the spark in his eye. Say patent pending. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of the few people I know who live tweets the, like, semi-finals. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we thought we couldn't get any more niche yet, we have. So yeah. with that, that was just some of the things announced at Gen Con. If you want to get onto BGG, there are hundreds of other things you can check out that have been announced. The board gaming world, luckily through some of the horribleness we've been going through, is still kicking along almost stronger than ever, which is good to see. So that is, again, the end of the episode. That is another episode in the can, uh, thanks to our good friends at LFG hyphen aus.com send them all your money and we have been talking to our good friend phil walker harding phil it has been a pleasure to have you the pleasure is mutual now just before we let you know go phil where can people find you should they want to you know reach out and uh listen to your 
tweets and get you to design a game for them and all that well, kind of stuff? Well, most of my tweets are on Twitter. So if you oh. head on over to Twitter, P Walker Harding, I mostly just like do pictures of my prototypes and and things like that. I Yep. Um, and also just philwalkerharding.com. If you want to get in touch other ways, you can find me there. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mm. Thank you very much, Phil. It's been a real pleasure, mate. And uh, thanks so much for spending some time with the Tasmanian Dice Men. We look forward to seeing that little one-off scenario in an upcoming adventure game, <laughs> which will no doubt be excellently voiceovered. What about this? A kind of Lovecraftian Antarctic and horror set in Tasmania. Ooh. Sold. Absolutely. Absolutely nailed it there. You you can you can have that one, sir. It might be on our podcast, but you can have that one. You design it and we will yeah. and we will voice it. Our rates are I wouldn't say reasonable, but just above reasonable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well look, thanks so much, Phil. It's been a, a real pleasure. And yeah, we're looking forward to seeing obviously more adventure games, Cloud City, more everything's that uh, you know, you, you sound like you've got yourself Play, playing for years and years, there are more of, of your games coming out, which is wonderful. So, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. And on that note, this is the end of the episode. You do know how to find Phil, but we are at Dice Men Cometh on everything sure from is. Instagram to Twitter to Facebook to, I don't know, Dice Men Cometh at gmail.com. We've even got an email address. Yeah, and we that should probably, um, we should we probably start a, um, a TikTok. I hear that's a thing that's taken off at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll start a US-based account of that. Yeah, that'll last a day or two. That'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> there we are. Satire. There we go. So that was episode 312 of The Dice Men Cometh, surprisingly Australia's largest board game podcast. And we'll be back with another special guest in the future. So for another week, uh, everybody, play all the games, stay safe, and just generally be happy and love each other. Sounds good to me. Bye. Yeah. Bye. You've been listening to another episode of The Dice Men Cometh, proudly brought to you by LFG Australia. Be sure to check out lfg-oz.com.au for all the details of their flagship events, LFG Sydney and LFG Essen Unplugged, as well as their online and physical retail store. You can find us at dicemencometh.com or on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, And don't forget, you can support us on Patreon too. Thanks for listening.